So we are in uh, a section of Acts where there's going to be a transition. If you remember in the very, very beginning of Acts, when the resurrected Jesus is appearing to his disciples, and he tells them that uh, they need to wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit has given them power, and then they'll go out and they'll be his witnesses uh, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. And and there's this, this reality in the book of Acts that, that the guy who wrote this down, Luke, who wrote these things, is wanting us to see. He wants us to see that this is about the church that Jesus built. This is about how uh, Jesus, this rabbi from Galilee, who, who claimed to be God's only begotten son, who did many miracles, who taught many uh, radical, challenging things to the religious establishment, predicted his own death and resurrection, uh, and then dies, resurrects, that he didn't just kind of leave 12 guys and say, get on with it. He leaves those 12 guys and also the others who uh, also saw Jesus rise from the dead and also were believing that. He leaves them to wait and to pray until he sends power for them to do what he wants them to do. And so the book of Acts is basically the history of how Jesus began to build this church, how he began to expand uh, and, and gain more followers. And what's interesting is that, of course, the first several chapters are just really about uh, Jews becoming Christians. About Jesus, of course, was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. He claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. And so really up until a certain point, it was really just Jews who were kind of believing, yeah, Jesus was the Messiah. But we've seen now in the book of Acts how the gospel is going not just to Jews, but it's going to people in Samaria that were kind of half Jewish, half pagan, so to speak. And even though they said they worshiped the God of the Bible, uh, they worshiped him in ignorance according to Jesus. And yet they were coming to faith in who the real Jesus was. They were seeing him as God the Son. And then we even saw them going to who are called the Hellenists, which would have been Greek-speaking Jews. They would have been uh, maybe Jews uh, by culture, I mean Jews by religion. Uh, and Jews by birth, but culturally they were uh, they were Greek, and therefore sometimes didn't get on with those that were in Jerusalem. And here we're going to see is now that the, the gospel is going out now to the Gentiles. It's going out to those that are non-Jews, and that's good news for us because if the gospel never went to the Gentiles, probably most of us here would have never had a chance to hear the gospel. And so we hear, we have this amazing story of this man named Cornelius that we're not going to see the whole thing today because we're trying to keep these things to 30 minutes. But we're going to get in the first part and see really how the gospel begins to go out to the Gentiles. So let's pick it up, verse 1, chapter 10. It says, There was a certain man in Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian regiment, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously uh, to the people and prayed to God always. Now, just a couple things just so we understand what we're seeing here. Cornelius, of course, being a Roman centurion, he was over a hundred soldiers. A Roman sort of sergeant, you might say, is not necessarily going to be the, the most likely candidate to become a Jesus follower. Uh, or at this point, uh, someone who's going to follow the God of the Hebrews. I mean, really, why would a Roman uh, military officer want to follow the God of the Hebrews? 
they were there, the Roman officers were there to kind of keep the Israelite people down, to make sure they didn't kind of create a revolt to try to get the land back under their sovereign rule. So why would they want, why would he want to do this? Obviously he was familiar with Roman gods. You know, Cornelius would have known what the Roman gods were all about. But there was something about uh, the Jews, something about the Hebrew God, something about the, the Hebrew scripture that drew this man. And what's interesting is that at, at this beginning, as we are introduced to Cornelius, he didn't believe in Jesus. So from a Christian perspective, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't saved, to use that term. He hadn't been completely forgiven of his sins necessarily. He wasn't one who was, to the term that we would use, that Jesus used, he wasn't born again. And so you have the situation where, even though that's not the case, he was called, he's called as one who fears God with all his household. He was a devout man. That means he was pious or committed to trying to follow the God of the Hebrews. And it says that he prayed to God always. It says that he gave alms generously. It's like he purposely made sure that there was money given to, to help the poor. And it says, when it says to the people, that's a reference to Israelites, a reference to the Jews. That's what's meant by the people, not just anybody, but specifically to the Jews. So in other words, here's a guy who you might not expect who would want to uh, know about the God of the Hebrews. He not only wants to know about him, but wants to serve the God of the Hebrews. In fact, the kind of the character traits that are about this guy, uh, I think we'd probably be impressed by if we saw Christians behave this way. I mean, what if we actually had churches full of people who prayed always and gave alms to the poor? And I mean, seriously, sometimes the thing that's really sad about uh, the church is that we don't look very Christian, even though we're supposed to be Jesus followers. But God was doing something in Cornelius' heart. There was something happening in this guy's heart uh, to make him attracted to the God of the Hebrews. Now, this is specifically interesting because the Bible says, in fact, the Apostle Paul makes a really uh, specific point in Romans chapter 3, where he lists a bunch of Old Testament scriptures, and the kind of the main point of all those scriptures is summed up in this phrase, there is none that seek after God. He makes his point, Paul makes a real point, that because we have this nature that just wants to say, I want to do what I want to do, none of us seek after God. Isn't that an interesting thing to think about? Especially considering how religious the world is. I mean, I think we all here understand that the majority of the world is religious in some form. They believe in a God. Most people believe in some sort of force that's bigger than the material. That's the majority opinion in the world, by far. And yet, Paul makes this statement, there's none that seek after God. And yet, here we have, in the scripture themselves, this guy Cornelius, who seems to be seeking after God. He wants to know the God of the Hebrews. So what do we come up with? Well, we're talking about how the gospel goes to the Gentiles, and I think it's important for us to recognize that the Bible says really clearly, Jesus taught very clearly, that it's God who draws sinners to himself. In fact, Jesus told the religious people of his day, he said, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. Now, they didn't like that because they wanted to think, no, 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 it's, it's us. We're, doing, we're coming close to God, not God coming close to us. And Jesus was, was basically saying, no, look, you need to understand, if you have a desire to see me as I am, it's only because God is drawing you to me. Now, that's not very flattering, is it? It's not really, it's not really easy for us to hear that, is it? But it's important for us to understand that this is what the the Scripture teaches. The Scripture teaches it's God who draws people, and often He draws people to Himself that we'd never expect to want to have anything to do with God. And that's part of my testimony. That's part of my story. 
That when I was in high school and I made fun of Christians, made fun of the guys because they were afraid of me, scammed on the girls because they were pretty. And this was kind of, you know, this is kind of where I was at. And then go to my 10-year high school reunion and they're all, I can't believe you became a Christian. And I think, well, I find it quite surprising myself. But it wasn't me. It wasn't my idea. It wasn't like I kind of looked at all the religions and then made a decision. This is the right one. God drew me to himself. Sometimes uh, kicking and screaming, I don't want to go, you know. But God drew me to himself. And we see this with Cornelius. God's drawing Cornelius to himself. This is why he's learning to fear the God of the Hebrews. This is why he's learning to pray to him always. This is why he's motivated to do the thing that the Jews would have saw as a pinnacle of, of character, of godly character. Giving to the vulnerable, helping those who, who can't help themselves. And so he's this man, and it says in verse 3, About the ninth hour of the day, he saw in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius... And when he, when he observed him, he was afraid, and he said, What is it, Lord? And he said, so, so the angel says to Cornelius, Your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now, I love this. Because even though the scripture says that we only come to God uh, because he draws us, even though the scripture is really clear that God has to draw us to himself, that there are none that seek after God, What you see here is what I would say, uh, God honoring a person who's responding to the light that they have. And when we talk about light in a biblical sense, we're not talking about turning on the, you know, the 40 watt bulb. We're talking about an understanding of truth. And the Bible talks about this in a lot of different ways. I'm going to quote to you some scriptures. I would have had them on the screen, but I lost my memory stick. Sorry. But I'm going to quote from a version of the Bible that's the New Living Translation. Um, because it's very easy to understand. So just listen. The Bible says in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 20, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, and through everything God made, they can clearly see His invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, so that they, were, so that they have no excuse for not knowing God. This is what we call the light of creation. The Bible teaches that, that creation itself, that this, this universe speaks that there has to be a creator. It's really one of the most logical things in the world. I know we live in a day and age, we live in a, in a culture that says, no, you don't have to believe in God because evolution says that there doesn't have to be a God. But actually, that's not even true. E- even people who are, are pretty strict Darwinists would say there has to be something before there can, there can't just be nothing that creates something. There has to be something for something to come from it. They might not want to give acknowledgement that that something is God, but they would say there has to be something to have something. And this is the light of creation, the fact that there's a crea- there is a creator. If there's a creation, there has to be a creator. But it's not just that. Listen to this. This is Romans chapter 2. Not only is there the light of creation, there's also what we call the light of conscience. Again, I'm reading, for the new, reading from the New Living Translation. It says, even Gentiles, that would be non-Jews, who do not have God's written law, show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. Notice, listen, for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing wrong. 
All of us have a conscience. You might say a conscience is like, the word literally means, the English word literally means with knowledge. And a conscience, you might say, is sort of like a window to our soul. And the light of God can go through that window. And of course, depending on how we've been raised and depending upon uh, how we've responded, that window can be you know, a certain color pain. It can be uh, dirtied. It can be cleaned. It depends. But that's how light comes through. But we have this conscience. So much so that it's amazing that every single one of us here, if we're being honest, has a standard of morality. I'm not saying all of our standards agree, but we all have a standard of morality. And with that standard of morality, all of us, if we're honest, would say, none of us measure up even to our own standard of morality. We always think, I could, I should do better. That is the witness of conscience. We know that, that, that there's, there's right and there's wrong. And we know, even if we tell ourselves, yeah, I'm, I'm usually on the right side, we know we still do wrong. We know there's a right and a wrong. We should do the right and avoid the wrong. That's the witness of conscience. Another witness, listen to this. This is Romans chapter 3. Verse 20, again, from the New Living Translation. For one, uh, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. This is what we'll call the light of God's law. So the, the, the reality is that if we look at what God has said, if, if, if we believe the Scripture and God has revealed His law that Moses gave the Ten Commandments, and almost all, all, every monotheistic religion condones that, yes, the, God gave us these Ten Commandments. If we believe that, then we look at those Ten Commandments and we agree that they're good. We say, okay, it's, you know, thou should not commit adultery. We agree that, you know, if you're in a, a relationship, you don't want your partner to be unfaithful to you. If you've had a girlfriend or boyfriend that's gone out on you, you know, that's painful. You don't want that to happen. We can say, no, it's good to be faithful in a relationship. And yet we can be so guilty of not being faithful in a relationship. We can be in a relationship and still be looking at someone else completely in lust. We'd all agree it's, it's good that we don't steal. We, we don't want to steal from people. We want people to steal from us. But then the truth is, we've all been guilty of stealing. We've all taken things without asking. Think we deserve something that hasn't actually been given to us, doesn't belong to us. We, we, we can... Uh, probably the, the biggest one, the most important one as well, is God says, don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any second. is like the first. It says, don't make any graven image. And you can make that with your hands or make that with your mind. But how guilty are we of thinking, oh, I think there's a God, but I think He's like this, as if we could figure out what God is like and as if we could speak with any authority of what God is like. The only way we're going to know what God is like is if God tells us what He's like. And so this is, the, this is the, the light of law. And the light of law tells us, man, I fall short of what is good. Now I'm saying all this because I believe this is what's happened with Cornelius. Cornelius has seen the light of creation and thought, this couldn't have just kind of somehow emitted in an evil way. There's goodness in the creation that reflects the goodness of God. I believe Cornelius, you know, even though he was a Gentile, he knew in his heart what would be expected of him, even as a Roman, morally, and he knew he fell short. He's attracted to maybe the moralistic stand of the Hebrew God, of the Hebrew Scriptures. So he hears that and he thinks, yes, that's how we should be. We should care about other people. We should, we should honor the God who made us. And so he praised him and gives alms always. But there's still this thing in him where he knows, but I still fall short. 
See, here's the thing when it comes to God drawing sinners. It's not only the fact that God draws people we don't expect, but also, listen, I believe God always gives further light to him who responds to the light that he has. That's my conviction. Now, this is both encouraging to me, because some people will ask, what about the people who have never heard about Jesus? Are they responding to the light they have? Because if they're responding to the light they have, I am convinced God will make sure they have more light. And I hear testimonies of this all the time in in nations that are, in a sense, closed to the gospel. People of other faiths having this conviction uh, of responding to the light of creation. There has to be a God. Responding to the light of conscience. There has to be a right and wrong. And I fall short of that wrong. Maybe even at times responding to the law of God, seeing this creator God that must have revealed himself in, in his law, in the law of Moses, and thinking, I fall short and going, God, how can I ever be right with you? How can I ever expect to approach you if I'm this way? And then responding to that light. And God brings people to them. Because God's faithful. So Cornelius has this, and when it says your prayers have and your alms have come up as a memorial before God, I don't believe this is the angel saying, Hey, ding ding ding, you've won the prize. Good job, Cornelius. You've earned your way to more light. No, I think he's I think this is really got him saying, Look, God's not unjust. He sees that you're responding to what you have. And he's going to give you more light. Now, then in verse 5 it says, Now send someone to Joppa. This is what the angel says to Cornelius. Send someone to Joppa and send for Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodging with Simon a tanner whose house is by the sea. He will tell you what you must do. Notice there's something else, Cornelius, that needs to happen. Something that you must do, the angel says. And I'm not going to tell you what you must do. The angel says, I'm going to send someone else. (laughs) Or someone else, God's going to send someone else. And when the angel who spoke to him had departed, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier from uh, among those who waited on him continually. So they, when he explained all these things, he sent them off to Joppa. Now here's what's interesting. Here's Cornelius. And he's, I mean, the scripture testifies of this guy. Devout. Prayed to God always, gave alms generously. Again, this is the kind of stuff we think, man, I wish, I wish we would do this better. And yet, even the most devout religious person, there's something else they must do. And we're going to see in a minute what they must do is believe the gospel, obey the gospel. Now, check this out. The Bible talks about this uh, in 2 Corinthians. Again, the Apostle Paul. And again, I'm going to quote from the New Living Translation because it's simpler. Listen. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They are unable to see, listen, the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness, has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I read those verses because we've talked about the light of creation, talked about the light of conscience, the light of God's law, but the light that we have to see is the light of the gospel. Now, this is where it gets difficult for us. Because I think I can't see anything in this book. I, I've, I've searched. I've wished there was other 
I wish there was a verse that would say something else, but I, what I've seen in this book is there's no way a person, this side of the cross, there's no way a person can be right with God apart from putting their faith in Jesus. Which is why Jesus said to his disciples, wait for power and then go into all the world. That we're meant to be people who take the gospel out. Why? Because people need the light of the gospel. They need the light of the gospel. And so here's what he's saying. There's an enemy who's blinding them from the light of the gospel because they need to hear the light of the gospel. This is what people need to hear. They need to know about Jesus. Now, this is interesting because, again, Paul says, and I quoted this verse this morning for Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to, again, quote the NLT. And here's what Paul says in Romans 6. He says, Thank God that once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obeyed this teaching. That's the gospel he's referring to, which we have given you. Now you are free from the slavery, your slavery to sin, and you have become slaves to the righteous, to righteous living. See, there's this reality that we need to understand as far as God drawing people. God will use people's religious devotion. He'll use their seeking. He'll use their wrestlings with religious things to bring them to the gospel. This is an important to understand because it's easy for us sometimes as Christians to uh, and, I, and, I, and I had this experience this week. I had a really great conversation with my Hindu neighbors. Lovely, lovely people. And I was reminded, it was easy for me as I was reading about Hinduism this, this, this quarter in one of my university classes. It was easy for me to kind of go, well, that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit. And here's a hole in that thought. And here's why that doesn't, isn't real. When I was dealing with these things as concepts or ideas. But when you're sitting down and you're talking to people that are nice people, that love their kids, that work hard, that treat people decently, you realize these are people, and people need to know Jesus. It's not just about whose ideas are better. We're talking about life and death, heaven and hell. We're talking about important things, so important that we need to make sure that we are being intentional about it, and so important that we make sure that we're being courteous and understanding. And it was, it was a, I won't get into all the details of, of, of talking to them, but one of the things that was really intriguing to me was how one of them was talking about some of their experiences when their parent, one of their parents was dying and how that made them think deeper about what they believe about, the, about God and about truth and about life and about death. And they really wrestled with things. Doesn't everybody do that? And it made me realize that the issue is not so much that I need to kind of show them why everything they believe is wrong, as much as what they need to understand is there's hope, that there is a guarantee that there is life after death, and you don't have to be reincarnated a million times. That Jesus rose from the dead, and therefore there's a resurrection, as he said. And there's hope for us if we put our faith in him. Now, now I share all this because it's important that here we have this guy, Cornelius, and God didn't leave him in a place where he was just a really good religious guy. God sent an angel to say, look, dude, there's more you need to know, and you need to call for this guy, and he's going to tell you what you need to do, what you need to know. So, God draws sinners, but you know what else God does? He prepares preachers. He prepares the guys who are going to actually share the message. Check out what happens in verse 9. It says, Then the next day, as they went on their journey and drew near the city, Peter went up to the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. Then he became hungry and wanted to eat, but he, while they made ready, while other people were cooking, he's a male chauvinist, make the women do it, um, he fell into a trance. <laughs> now, <laughs> this is, this is a, I think, an important thing to recognize. What's Peter doing while they're making lunch? He goes up to pray. 
Now, one of the things that we forget is that one of the ways that God uses to prepare us to share Jesus with others is simple spiritual disciplines. Seriously. Again, especially as Christians, because we know we're saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. Sometimes we think discipline, isn't discipline like legalism? It's not. Isn't discipline mean like, oh, if we're being disciplined, you know, spiritually, that means we're not actually just resting in grace? No, it doesn't mean that. And here's Peter, what he's doing is, yeah, he's hungry, he's waiting for his fish sandwich, but instead, he's going up on the rooftop, and his spiritual habit, this habit of getting aside and praying, probably three times a day, is making him available to what God wants. The Bible talks about this in the book of Proverbs. It talks about, you know, don't let your hearts envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of God all the day. Later on in chapter 4 of Proverbs, it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Have you ever felt like or heard people say, oh, I can't help how I feel? That's a lie. I'm not saying our emotions, we can kind of click off, click, click on. Oh, I'm feeling excited about God. I don't feel anything about God. I'm not saying that. But I am saying this. As the saying goes, if you don't lead your heart, your heart will lead you. And we need to lead our affections. We need to say, okay, what do I want to invest my time in so my affections are going that direction? And if we're Jesus followers, that means we want to say, okay, God, I want to avail myself to you. I want to say, I want to be in the habit of praying. Do you know why we give up on the basic disciplines, prayer, reading scripture, taking time to be with God's people? You know why we give up on it? It's not satisfying. We don't always feel good. Can we be honest about that? Can we be honest that we go to church sometime and we're like, shut up, John, please. I'm so tired. Not that song again. Can we be honest that, you know, when the alarm goes off and you think, I'm going to have time with God, I'm going to do it. Alarm goes off, you're like, I really just want to sleep. It's way more important. I'm saved by grace. Snooze. (laughs) I mean, we do this because the truth is, listen, the truth is, we believe a lie that says, okay, I, you know, as long as I want God, it's enough. But the truth is, if you say you want God, but you tend to want sleep more, or your own time and hobbies more, then we, you know what happens? You don't want God so much anymore. We do need to sort of avail ourselves that our affections are given to God. I don't think it's an accident here that Peter, this is part of God's sovereignty, God sovereignly uses people this way. I don't think it's an accident that Peter, his spiritual habits, made him available to God. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. It's a reality. Now, Peter, he falls into this trance, and some people have said it's because he was really hungry and he was passing out in the Mediterranean heat. Uh, I don't think so, but here he falls in this trance, and what it says, verse 11, he saw heaven open, an object descends like a great sheet, bound at the four corners, descending to him, and let down to the earth, and in it were all kinds of of four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And the voice came and said to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. All the Americans said, Let's do it. But Peter says, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything uncommon, I'm sorry, common or unclean. Now, Peter's raised in a Jewish home, an Orthodox, we would say today maybe a kosher home. He didn't eat anything that the Bible would say don't eat. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with having that kind of a diet. He didn't do it. But then he has this vision, and it says, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, "Uh, no, (laughs) I've been taught you shouldn't do this. 
But it says in verse 15, the voice spoke to him again a second time saying, notice, what God has cleansed, you must not call common. This was done three times and the object was taken up into heaven again. Now, Peter doesn't get it right away, but here's what God's doing. God has to challenge, challenge Peter's assumptions about who he wants to save, who he wants to be right with him. Peter is, is, is Orthodox Jew, even though now he believes in Jesus. He's still thinking salvation is for the Jews. He's still thinking, we'll see later on, probably wrestling with, does God want to save just Gentiles? This is why it's such a problem with him. And he's thinking, okay, how can this be? How can God want me to do something that would be so un-Jewish if he's chosen the Jews? How could that be? And God had to question his assumptions about who he wants to save and how he wants to save him. A lot of times that has to happen with us as well. A lot of times we think, oh, that person doesn't care. They want anything to do with that. They have their religion, whatever the case might be. And God has to challenge us about what we assume about people. And so what ends up happening is, it says in verse 17, while Peter wondered within himself what the vision which he had seen meant, behold, the men who had sent, been sent from Cornelius had made an inquiry at Simon's house and stood before the gate. And they called and asked whether Simon, whose surname was Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter thought about the vision, okay, so the guys are coming from, from, uh, 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 from Caesarea to Joppa where Peter's staying. Peter's had this vision, okay. They're just about to get, basically come to the door. And it says that Peter is, in verse 19, he's thinking about this vision. What does this mean? Why three times? God says, don't call it unclean or common what I've made clean. What is this? How does this work? What does this mean? As he's thinking about these things, it says the Spirit said to him, God's Spirit spoke to him, saying, Behold, three men are seeking you. Arise, therefore, go down and go to them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Now, Peter receives what we might call a specific word from God. Now, I want to be careful here, because I don't want you to think that I'm teaching you that you can't ever tell anybody about Jesus unless you get that specific word from God. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Like, you have to hear a voice saying, Go talk to that guy. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But there is something to this. There is something to this, especially if people are called to missions. You'll see that God will often really just stir their hearts. They'll receive a specific call. You need to go do this. And they can't shake it. They think, what's going on? Why is this happening? Peter has this, right? But here's what's cool. Verse 21, he gets a practical confirmation. Then Peter went down to the men and who had been sent from Cornelius. And he said, yes, I am he who you seek. For what reason have you come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one who fears God and has a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you to his house and to hear words from you. And then they invited uh, him, them in and lodged there. And the next day Peter went away with them and some brethren uh, from Joppa accompanied him. So, God says, look, do whatever they say. You're going to have three guys. He goes to the front door. There's three guys. Okay. Yeah, I'm expecting you. What do you actually want? He tells them the story. There's this Gentile guy, Cornelius. He's supposed to hear what you say and do whatever you say. Hmm. Is this an opportunity, God? I think God might want to go with these people. So he invites them in. They spend the night. They all go together. This is how God does it. God prepares us. He prepares us as a person we want to share. And I love this because this is how God saves people. He doesn't just, he prepares the people that he's going to save and he also prepares the people he's going to use to reach the people he's going to save. He's preparing both ends. Now some of you are on one of those two ends. Some of you guys are on the end of being prepared to be saved and some of you will be on the end of being prepared to help people be saved. 
But I just want you to know, both those ends are God at work. It's God doing something. Because He wants to save people. So it says, verse 24, On the following day they went to Caesarea, and now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as they talked with him, he went in and he found many who had come together. Now this is the, the, the other thing I want you guys to understand, how God reaches towards the Gentiles. This is the third and final thing. And that is that God, he uses people. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, the fact that God reigns over all, that God does whatever he wants, that doesn't mean that God bypasses people. Necessarily. It doesn't mean that God ignores the choices that people make. That's not what we mean by the sovereignty of God. God uses people. God uses our influences. You see here that um, Cornelius invites all his family, his, his relatives. Hey, come here. This is You guys know what, what's happened since I've been following the God of the Hebrews. I had this vision with an angel. You gotta, they said, send this guy, uh, go send for this guy Peter. He's coming to speak. You guys got to come hear this. He calls his close friends. That's interesting because here's one of the things that happens. It's not an accident that we often see the, that people are more likely to become Christians if they have Christian friends. Duh. Why? Because that's what God uses. This is the thing, too, about this. Um, I believe one of the reasons God's so keen on using friends is because even though conversion is something that God only has to do, when I became a Christian, nobody was talking to me about God. Nobody. I mean, I eventually went to church and heard the gospel, but I almost had this kind of experience where God spoke to me, and I knew I needed to go to church and hear about Jesus. And when I heard about Jesus, I thought, that's what I need, and I put my faith in him. But it wasn't like people sharing with me. But the thing was, is that God instantly put me in a group of people, because even though conversion is totally something that God has to do on his own, you know, we don't do that. Discipleship, learning to follow Jesus, is something God always does with us in a group, and he always uses relationship. So it makes perfect sense that God's going to use friendships with people. Now, please mis- don't misunderstand me. I'm not also saying only be friends with people so you can convert them. That's not what I'm saying. We should be friends with people because they're made in the image of God and it's right to love people. But obviously, if we love people, we want to see them know Jesus. Now, so God uses people. He uses their influences. But also notice, God uses people who are willing to kind of break out of their social norm. Look at verse 28. Then Peter says to them, he says to this whole group, Cornelius and his friends and family, he says, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or go to one of another nation. When he means unlawful, he's not saying that the Bible, the law of God, doesn't allow that. He's talking about Jewish tradition. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came without objection as soon as I was sent uh, for I ask then, for what reason have you sent for me? So he was willing to say, look, here I am. And, and you could see, we, Joe mentioned this last week, that God was already kind of preparing him to go out of his social norm because he was staying at Simon the Tanner's house. Tanners basically kill animals and prepare animal skins. In a Jewish perspective, that makes them ceremonially unclean. So to be in that house could potentially make you ceremonially unclean. You can see that God was maybe preparing Simon Peter for, for this next thing. 
But Peter gets there after this vision. He goes, you know, God's made it really clear. I cannot call any man unclean. I can't call people common whom God has cleansed. So, so what is it that you really want to know from me? And so Cornelius basically kind of reviews what happened to him. He says, I was fasting until this hour. At the ninth hour, uh, I prayed in my house. Behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, describing the angel, and said, uh, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard. Your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Therefore, send to Joppa and call Simon here. His surname is, surname is Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Notice what he says. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. This is what God uses. God uses people's hunger for answers. When I was doing youth work in the States, I used to constantly challenge the young people because I used to get... I don't know why I attracted these kind, but I used to get the, the kind of kids that were just totally cynical. Uh, this is back in the 90s, and so the, everyone was like, all the, the, the rough, gothy kids that were dressed like Marilyn Manson and stuff. You guys know who Marilyn Manson is? Okay, I don't know how old I am, so, okay. Yes, you know who Marilyn Manson is, okay. And these kids were just like, just kind of drilling me with every question. And I used, to, I used to challenge them all the time and say, okay, look, no problem. You can ask any question you want. Let me just ask you a question. Are you looking for answers, or are you looking for excuses? Do you want excuses to not believe? Or do you want answers so you can believe? Do you want answers to know the truth? One of the greatest things that Jesus ever said was that the truth was knowable, definable, and the truth was liberating. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Do you want to know what truth is? Do you want to know who truth is? Keep asking the questions. Because God's going to use your desire, your hunger for answers, and he's going to bring you the answers if you want answers and not excuses. So the rest of the chapter, we're going to see when Peter begins to preach. I think Neil's handling this next week. be really good. But just wanted to kind of whet our appetite. This is what God does.